This morning we begin a study of the book of Exodus, second book of the Bible, a book pretty famous, has the parting of the Red Sea, the Passover institution, story of Moses begins there. We're going to only deal with the first 19 chapters, though, uh, right up to Mount Sinai. So we find uh, in chapter 1, Israel and Egypt, and by 19, they are at Mount Sinai, Sinai about to receive the Ten Commandments. And so that's the, the portion that we're going to deal with uh, in our study. Now, this morning, as a bit of a background so that we can understand a little bit of how the Bible leads into Exodus chapter 1, I'd like you to begin with me in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 46. Genesis 46, this is found page 39 in the, the uh, book in the pew, that blue book, the blue Bible, if you'd like to follow along. So, Genesis 46, verse 1. Now, there's a bit of a story of how Joseph himself came into Egypt and became ultimately the second in command in Egypt, saved Egypt and eventually his own family from famine. And now the final result is the family from which he came is going to go down to Egypt. So Israel took his journey, that is Jacob, with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation." I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. I'm going to read verse 8 because these are the very words that are repeated in Exodus chapter 1, very first verse of, of Exodus. Now, these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, and then it gives the names. But just remember that, chapter 46, verse 8, these are the names. Now, if you'll turn over to the uh, next chapter, or, or later in this chapter, to verses 26 and 27. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. And then in the next chapter, in verses 5 and 6... Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among you, among them, put them in charge of my livestock. <clears throat> 
Uh, we, see, we find them in the land of Goshen in Exodus. And then finally, in chapter 50, the last section of the book of Genesis, and then we'll read straight on into Exodus 1. So, Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children, that's one of his sons, of the third generation, the the children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, Manasseh was his other son, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, just notice in these few verses we've read that God tells Jacob to go down with his family into Egypt. He says, I will be with you. And he says personally to Jacob, I will bring you out. And here's Joseph, Jacob's son, at the end of his life saying, he will visit and bring you out of this land one day. Now that's significant because you can't see it in in, uh, the English version, but Exodus begins with the word and... And these are the names of the sons of Israel, which calls to mind that chapter 46, verse 8. So there's a direct tie. There's an assumption. You've read thus far, right? Now let's move on to the next part. As I continue my story about the formation of Israel, let me tell you how it all came about or how it continued. So, in verse 1, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt at the time. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. All their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. 
But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray again. Oh, Father, bless us as we come to this uh, text that, Lord, we might uh, see your glory in this word. And, Lord, we might give ourselves up to this great God. Oh, bless us, Lord, to your honor we pray. Amen. I'm going to jump right in and uh, offer three things to begin with and how to approach uh, the Old Testament, but also, in particular, how we're going to approach Exodus. First, I just want to talk a little bit about the importance of Exodus as a book. Uh, First of all, Exodus is a turning point in the story. It's a time of new beginning when a nation in slavery is brought out of slavery into a new beginning, eventually to come into the land of Israel. And it's it's the book where God's name is revealed, Yahweh. It's the book where the Passover lamb is revealed. And so in the New Testament, Jesus is revealed as the Word of God, the new name of God. And Jesus is revealed as the the true Lamb who is slain. So there's an incredible parallel in the new turning point of Exodus and the new turning point of the New Testament. Secondly, uh, so there's a new beginning like the New Testament, and then there's this name of Jesus and Passover lamb. So this whole newness that is given uh, from Old Testament, uh, from, from Exodus. Secondly, then, there are some ways, in some ways, Genesis, we find, is actually, even though so much emphasis is given to Genesis, and rightly so because of the creation account, the flood account, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, still it functions as a preparation and background for the the story of Israel that begins properly, in a sense, in Exodus. Of course, the story of Israel goes back to Abraham, Jacob, and uh, Isaac and Jacob. But the formation as a nation and God's history with that nation to the end of the Old Testament into the New Testament begins with Exodus. And so we see its place as the important start of the people of Israel for which Genesis has been a preparation. And then uh, thirdly, it's the, uh, there's this idea of Israel uh, and Jesus being paralleled in Old and New Testament so that the story of Christ is so much like the story of Israel. They were oppressed in Egypt and the babies were threatened with death. Jesus was threatened with death and the children among whom he was born. 
there's the going from the sea into the wilderness with Exodus and, and Israel. And then Jesus goes from the waters of baptism into the wilderness himself. There's the temptation of Israel in the wilderness and the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. All of this shows in the first place just the importance of Exodus, the importance of Exodus in the, uh, the, in the Bible, uh, because it's this turning point, it's a new beginning, it's the same revelation of God in the Old and New Testament. Uh, but not only is it an important place, the important place of Exodus, but the important revelation of Exodus. We need to see Exodus as all of the Old Testament, as a theological history The point of Exodus will be, who is God? And the point will be to present God as a God worthy to be trusted, to be worshipped, and to be served. So as we go into Exodus, not only realize the importance of its place, but the importance of the revelation of God that is given to us in Exodus. And that is tied to the final revelation of God in Jesus Christ. So that you could say, when we get to the New Testament, we realize the whole Old Testament story finally has its issue in the coming of Christ and his death and resurrection. That's the period and exclamation point on Israel's story, as one has said. And so the story of Israel is part of leading up to the story of Christ It's a part of that. And so it's a part of the revelation of God. So there's this important book of Exodus, the important revelation of God in Exodus. And then there's an important call of Exodus to each one of us that it, when we begin to ask, how does this apply to me? It's not, as one has written, the book of Exodus is not waiting there for us to bring it into our world. Like, how is this going to apply to me? Rather, Exodus is standing there defining what your world should look like and calling you into its story, okay? So it's not something we take and manipulate to fit into our lives, so to speak. How is this going to apply? But rather, its overall application is, here is the story of God. Here is this great God, and it calls you into that story It calls you, it it says, I'm going to help define your story. I'm going to remake your story. I'm going to bring you into this story. Who is this God? How does he regard his people? What are the lengths to which he goes to deliver his people? Then how can we know him and not only be delivered by him, but how can we be a part of the deliverance that he will bring to others as well? Okay. So, Like every part of the word, this is a book that redefines your story because it remakes that story and calls your story into God's story. So just as a way of introduction, this important place of Exodus, the revelation of God in Exodus, and the call of Exodus into a new story. Now, uh, this first chapter begins, as we've said, by simply showing the continuity of this story with what has come before of it, so before it, so you can really call that the continuity of God's care for Israel, the continuity of God's care for Israel. 
They are there because he sent them. The promise is there that he will bring them out. And then in the midst of it, we see this amazing statement that in verse 7, the people were fruitful, increased greatly, etc. Now, the word be fruitful and multiply is... Those words are used in Genesis 1 with the animals and with Adam and Eve. It's used later with Noah when he came out of the ark. And it's used twice at least with Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, and Jacob being fruitful and multiplying. So this phrase is all the way through Genesis and should call to mind if we've been reading up to now. Whoa. In, in two ways. Not only that... This is a fulfillment of the promise that Israel would be fruitful and multiply. But it's really a statement of how they are fulfilling God's original mandate to be fruitful and multiply in the earth. Because God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. What's interesting about this uh, verse 7, it uses five uh, non-fruitful, repeated verbs to describe their expansion. The only other place where five verbs are used like this is Genesis 1.28, where God says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. And three of the verbs are the same. So the point is this, that not only will God fulfill the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he is the God of creation who commands blessing to his people and makes you fruitful. Because in the Old Testament in Genesis, it said he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. He blessed the animals and they were fruitful and multiplied. In fact, one of the words used here is only used of swarming fish or swarming insects. It's, it's kind of an earthy word to describe people, like a swarm of butterflies or a swarm of starlings or sardines, a mob, a mass, a throng, a horde you know, uh, of people. He, he's just trying to underscore just how prolific and abundant the people of Israel were here. So this, this calls to mind the God of creation is bringing about his blessings, his creational blessings in his people. And in particular, he is fulfilling the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You will have uh, descendants like the stars of the seashore. So all of this should be ringing in our ears as we read verse 7 of chapter 1. To recall that the great creator God is with them. The great God of promise is with them. Because when you hit verse 8, it surely doesn't look like he's with them. But the first verses are to remind us, take all of this in its context of who God is. The mighty creator God is with them. The God of promise is with them. And that helps us as we enter into verses 8 and following where it doesn't seem like God is anywhere to be seen except in the faith of the midwives. And we don't hear until after the the beginning of the story of Moses at the end of chapter 2 do we hear that God heard their cry. And so purposely there is this idea as we come from the continuity of God's care Uh, into this second part, which you can call the drama of God's apparent absence, okay? 
the continuity of God's care, we all must believe and continue to be enriched by this. And we, much more than they, can call to mind the continuity of God's care as Paul does in Romans and other places saying, he gave his son for you. He's going to continue to care for you because he gave his son for you. That defines God's care for you. How much more has God said to us and demonstrated to us than he did to these people who were in Egypt? But in the background of this continuity of God's care, here's the drama of God's apparent absence. As this new king arose over Egypt who did not know uh, Joseph. And it's interesting in the uh, Kimball Art Museum, I won't go into the details, but there's a... uh, a kneeling statue of Sinanmut, uh, one of the officials in a certain kingdom in, in Egypt. The, the statue's 3,500 years old. Pretty cool, right, in, the, in that regard. But part of, part of the inscription on it is wiped out to indicate that that fella fell out of favor along the way and he was purposely forgotten, Right? His name is just etched out. You can see it on the statue when you go to the Kimball. And in that way, this leader, this uh, Egyptian pharaoh, had erased Joseph's name. He was purposely not recognized any longer. Maybe his hero status as the one who rescued Egypt from the disaster of starvation was a threat to him. But now, of course, not only was he forgotten but his people are forgotten, and they, fell out of, they fall out of favor as well. And so they, it, it underscores just how bitter and difficult their life was under this enslavement. And they continued to press them and continued ruthlessly to make their life as miserable as possible to try to reduce their numbers, to try by sheer exhaustion and sheer work to hold them at bay. But as we read in this passage, they just kept multiplying. (laughs) They just kept spreading out. It was had to be extremely frustrating for Pharaoh that as he brings his great power against this nation situated there in Goshen, they just continued to have more and more children and to spread in, in great ways. And it's interesting in, throughout the history of the church, no matter what the oppression of the church uh, throughout the ages, so in the early church and in so many places in history and around the world under persecution, God's people have continued to multiply. God t- brings forth his blessing upon his people in spite of what the world does. And that doesn't mean that we... Uh, don't desire that this is removed and that in some places and and, uh, areas of the world that has been pretty effective it seems on the surface at least for some time to wipe out the influence of Christianity but in God's time this indicates when God chooses and begins to work even in the midst of uh, tremendous difficulty and upheaval in regions as we've even heard from our brother who's spoken to us this weekend, that God opens up opportunities for the gospel. So we always must be looking to that great God who yet is the creator of the world. All power is in his hand. 
Every leader of every country is in his hand, and he moves the issues and directions of the nations as he chooses for the purposes that he chooses and for the benefit of his people. And so we must trust God even as they would be called to trust God in this situation. Uh, We'll speak a little bit more to this notion of oppression uh, toward the end. But then he steps it up, right? He steps it up, and this is not having its effect to wipe out the nation. And so he goes on the attack against the uh, infant boys of the Hebrews. Uh, Perhaps this is the reason, it seems like there's a a lot of different ways to do this, but one of the reasons may have been if they wipe out the the boys, then they eventually wipe out their military power. Uh, They also can have the girls and women for themselves. Why waste all these women would be the idea, right, Uh, from the Pharaoh. Um, So he comes, he, he, he dedicates himself to kill the boys. And you see that not only does he approach the midwives, but when that doesn't work, the last verse of our chapter, he commanded everybody, anybody, you see a child born, throw them into the river. Wherever you might see a young boy, kill them. It's mass genocide that is commanded uh, here by Pharaoh. And in the midst of that uh, attempted genocide, we have these two midwives, Shifra and Puah. And we see that they acted because of what? Verse 17, they feared God and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded. Uh, One commentator says, they would not render unto Pharaoh what belongs to God. This recalls Abraham because Abraham, it says, when he was willing to obey God, even to the point of sacrificing his own son, God said, now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And so these Jewish women risked their own lives to protect the boys, much like the people in Holland and elsewhere who protected Jews from the Germans in World War II. But what drove them, what governed them, was the fear of God. The fear of God operates here where there's no political or social law or pressure to do the right thing. In fact, the opposite might be the case. The fear of God means that one loves and admires and honors God so much that when presented with the choice, you do what's pleasing to God, whatever the circumstances Fear is not so much a dread of what God might do to you, though it does respect his great power. Fear takes into account everything that God is, his full greatness and beauty, including his kindness and his faithfulness. It is, the fear of God is an admiration that brings about honoring, loving obedience to God. See, it's admirations that's so deep You're willing to suffer for this God. You're willing to face opposition for this God because you have such a deep admiration and joy in this God and respect for this God. You could put it this way. The fear of God is living with reality in view. It's living with reality in view. The reality of the presence 
of God. And that's a major theme in Exodus that several commentators underscore, the presence of God with his people. And even though there's no outward show of the presence of God, hear these women living in the presence of God and directing their lives because of that presence. You see this in the story of Joseph, right? This could recall the story of Joseph who was sold into slavery and was living with a, the captain of the guard, Potiphar, the captain of the guard for Pharaoh. And God blessed Potiphar because of Joseph. And everything Joseph touched uh, turned to gold, so to speak. And Potiphar made him the uh, head of everything that he owned. But it says in that passage in uh, Genesis 39 that Joseph was good-looking, and so Potiphar's wife casts her eye upon him, and she begins to ask him to sleep with her. And it was such a great setup for pleasure for Joseph, if he had a mind for it. Uh, If he had been envious of Potiphar, you know, that, hey, I'm running everything, and you're just sitting on your duff doing nothing. Or he was bitter over that. Perfect opportunity to stab him in the back. Perfect opportunity to show him up, to undercut him, to make fun of him behind his back and to get away with so much and have some pleasure on the side. But it's obvious from the passage he respected his master. He respected the great privileges he had entrusted to Joseph. He saw how ugly wrong it would be. (laughs) Just ugly wrong. And he wouldn't do it. Even after she approached him again and again and again, and she finally grabbed his garment and wouldn't let go, and he, he literally ran out of his garment. And I love how the ESV puts it. He got out of the house, all right? He got out of the house. But here's the reason he gave to Potiphar's wife the first time she asked him, the first time she said it. He said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? How can I do that? He's living in the presence of God. And he didn't know what it might cost him. But he was living in the presence of God. Potiphar doesn't see it. He won't ever see it. That doesn't matter to Joseph. It's not a matter of we can get away with it. That doesn't matter. I can't get away with it with God. And that's what matters is his presence. My living in his presence He was governed by the fear of God. That's why in Leviticus 19, 14, it's interesting. He says, you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. You curse the deaf, they don't know it. Oh, you're just laughing with all your buddies and you're calling him names and just just rollicking, right? Because he doesn't hear all the names you're calling him. Or the blind man, you trip him. He doesn't know who tripped him. You just get away with it. You just laugh at him. And God says, don't do that. You shall fear the Lord your God. I am Yahweh. And Yahweh has as part of it, I am present. I am present for blessing. I am present in all of my glory. You shall not treat one another that way. You will fear me. See, you will regard me, regard the fact that I detest your doing that. And I'm here, and that's what matters. He says the same thing. You shall stand up before the gray head, later in chapter 19. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. Old man's walking along like I will be soon. And um, 
he can't even hear you. Maybe he can't see you. See, he, he doesn't even know what's going on. Maybe he's lost his mind. And you can say anything you want to. You can do anything you want to to him. What does he say to this old, wizened, weak, frail man that can hardly walk? He said, you rise up and you honor that man. Why? Because of the fear of God. Because you respect me and I bring honor to this man. I treat him in that way. The whole of Leviticus 19 is you will be holy because I'm holy. You're going to be like me, good like I am, gracious and kind like I am. In other words, holy like I am. Holy is just a word for intense goodness, all right? Intense, unflexible goodness that despises that which is not good, that would do harm to one another. And so he says later in Leviticus 25, you shall not... You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I'm the Lord your God. That's in a, tra- a financial transaction where you might get away with something. And so there is this continuity of God's care. There's the drama of God's apparent absence, but then there's the beauty of those who honor God in the midst of oppression, in the midst of difficulty. The beauty of those who honor God. It's interesting that Pharaoh remains nameless. Right? You don't even know. This is just a title, just like the president. But you never know who the name of the president is. But they are named because they honored God. They feared the Lord and did what was right, even though they knew they could possibly be executed on the spot. They kept their humanity and dignity intact to do the right thing. There's a movie, I won't go into the details, the movie U571 that some of you have seen. And at the end of the movie, this young man has to leave this air hose to go and close an air valve. And he does leave the air hose. It's the only way he can close the valve. And when he closed the valve, he doesn't make it back. But all the men on the ship are saved. And the uh, the actual machine that they were trying to get uh, away. The enigma is, is retrieved as well. Anyway, it's, it's a good little story, although the British think we've really got it wrong on there and probably have. But we have to write it in an American way, of course, you know. Um, but here, here's that sacrifice. They were sacrificing themselves. They were risking their lives for the sake of these boys. It's the, the uh, word Pharaoh is a title which means something like great house. And so as it, the irony that they refused and then God dealt well with them and gave them a great house, gave them a house. It's a play on the words here. So that he brought down the house of Pharaoh, but he built their house uh, in, the, in the wake of it. And of course, these women in their sacrifice of their lives, they're they're putting themselves on the line for the sake of these boys. It's so godlike. Yeah? It's so godlike. And that wouldn't come, uh, it wouldn't show itself until finally God takes flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and he stands in our place to sacrifice himself for us, to rescue us from our own sin, which we had committed against that God. And so this is a godlike thing. 
And this was not just a possibility for Christ. It was a reality. It was, it was truly, in that sense, a suicide mission uh, that he knew he would have to die for his people. And as you think about the throwing of the children into the river, there's so many ironies that will unfold. Uh, the, the, the river god that was, in a sense, being appeased by casting these baby boys into the river was going to be so overruled and governed as to be the means of preserving the life of the baby Moses who would grow up to be used of God to bring down the house of Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt. That's one of the ironies. God will use this river in a very different way than what the Egyptians intend. And also it makes you wonder about the first plague brought on Egypt. You're going to throw my children in the river? You want to give them to your river God? You want to spill their blood in the river? Okay, how about the whole river becoming blood? Very first plague. Let's see what your river God does about that. And so we'll find out it's not Pharaoh versus Israel here It's Pharaoh ultimately against the God of creation who has aligned himself with Israel. He is tied in to the creator himself. And so no wonder that when this Pharaoh sets himself to destroy the Israelite baby boys, that he's setting in in motion a chain of events that could only end in the death of the Egyptian firstborn children. And finally, the irony that He's setting, he sets out to kill the boys by means of drowning in a kind of military attack on the helpless males. In the end, it's the elite males of Egypt that are drowned in the Red Sea. So, in our context, we're told in Romans 12, never enact vengeance. And it's interesting, God doesn't just say there, because that would be wrong, which it would be, but he says... Vengeance is mine. And when you see the story of Exodus, it allows you to say, okay, I will do what Paul says in Romans 12, which is love those who persecute you. Pray for those who hurt you and harm you. Care for them. If justice is needed, I will take care of that. I will fully take care of justice. You want to review it? Read Exodus. Read Exodus if you doubt what God will do in his justice. This allows us free to do good in our world. And of course, this idea of this this teaching of oppression also, and we'll talk more about this as we go through, has a call to us, what are we doing against oppression in our day? such as the International Justice Mission, which is set to release, uh, is set to stop sex trafficking and, and, and slavery in this world. Um, a, a wonderful organization that has dedicated itself uh, to the removal of oppression. How can we remove oppression from our society? What are the different ways that oppression shows itself and injustice and unrighteousness in our own society? There's a call that will come out again and again in Exodus about that. But in terms of then the fear of God that is that with which this chapter ends, we have a wonderful promise in the new covenant that he will put his fear in us. He will put his fear in us. It, it's the same thing as saying, I will write my law on your heart or I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes. I would call this 
an inner passionate sincerity to love and obey God. Don't we want that? An inner passionate sincerity to love and worship and trust and obey God. It's part of his gift. It's it's part of his salvation. It's part of his rescue. We must nurture it in prayer. We must nurture it by the word. We must nurture it in worship, which we seek to do. Nurture it in small group discussions. uh, Nurture it in one-on-one meetings and encouragement and all of these ways. But ultimately, it is God's gracious gift of the new covenant to make us a people who in our day... Walk in the fear of God. We're not governed by anything else except that respect and honor to God. And it's interesting how Paul describes it. And this is really a synonym practically in the New Testament. The love of Christ governs us. We are so in awe of this God of love. So in awe of what he's done for Christ Jesus. We just hand our lives over to him again and again and again. As Psalm 130 says, there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. There is forgiveness with you that we may be in awe of you. And that you and nothing else will govern our lives. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy to us in Christ. We thank you that you are putting in us this great honor and respect and admiration for you that causes us, Lord, to give our lives up to your will, to be used in this world no matter what the cost. Bless us, Lord, to that end. Amen.